Listener Production. Hey, it's Jenna and Alexa here. We talk about eating disorders in this episode, which we know can be distressing. So if you need resources or support, go to butterflyfoundation.org.au or call the helpline on 1800 334 673. I'm Action Alexa, former college American football player and wrestler turned half Ironman competitor. I've overcome alcoholism and managed to die on the operating table four times. And now I'm a strength coach and motivational speaker. And I'm Jenna Louise, an ex-competitive gymnast and BMX racer, now a multidisciplined, high-performance athlete and coach. Over the course of our careers within the fitness industry, we've seen firsthand the impact that physical strength and mental toughness can have in changing the course of people's lives. In our podcast, How Fitness Saved My Life, We invite people to share the stories and practical skills of how they built their physical, mental and emotional fitness and how that saved them at the hardest time of their life. I had a big calendar and I wrote on it, world champion, and I was incredibly driven and I got there and I won it and I automatically went, did I deserve that? Was I good enough to beat the four-time world champion? Well, I'm pretty sure that today's guest, Hattie Boydall, came out of the womb flexing. Hattie has been an elite gymnast since the age of four and was the first Australian woman to win the coveted WBFF, the World Beauty Fitness and Fashion Model Champion of the World. But her journey to self-love and acceptance has not always been a straightforward one because before she started weightlifting, she had been suffering from anorexia and body dysmorphia, which caused her to be hospitalised after her weight plummeted to 27 kilos. So today, Hattie is sharing with us her road to recovery, and how strength training and mental endurance saved her life when she was at her lowest. She's a boss, she's a babe, she's an absolute badass, and she's one woman I would never want to challenge to an arm wrestle. Welcome, Hattie Boydell. (laughs) What an intro. My God. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) I I mean, let's go with that because I would actually really love to challenge you to an arm wrestle, but that's kind of who I am, you know. I'm kind of competitive. (laughs) Oh, God. Look, I mean, you have done some incredible things in your journey to where you are now. But what I really want to know is when did your fitness journey begin and sort of why? Like, how did you get into it? The funny thing is I've done more training in my life than I've done anything else. Um, My parents put me into gymnastics when I was four years old and within a year I was competing. So my journey through fitness started at such a young age and I'm so grateful because there were so many tools that I learned from being an elite gymnast. I didn't get into weight training till I was like 17. And I really reflect back on my gymnastics career and think, holy shit, how did I do some of that stuff? Like it's pretty crazy. So, you know, I've I've been training my whole life essentially. So that's where it started, four years old, weight training when I was 17. I was not weight training or doing gymnastics. I was definitely, I was definitely um, doing gymnastics at that age. I think that's where I got my competitive edge from, and I have to say that's probably where your competitive edge came from as well as gymnastics, and you know, using that and applying that throughout the rest of your life. I think, and starting at such an early age, I think it's so important to learn those skills so you can use them later on in your life. Yeah, I think um, any sport or anything, anything where you've got to go through levels teaches discipline right? It's like you can't Absolutely. go to level 10 without level one, level two, level three, level four. And, you know, at 12 years old, I was doing 32 hours a week of gymnastics. That's, you know, <laughs> four times the amount of training I do now, you know, before and after after school and even more than what I do in a competition prep. And I just look back and think, how the hell 
did I do that? And I had really poor nutrition as a child. I was so picky. I didn't like anything, which was really scary for my coaches and my mom and dad, but our taste buds develop over time. That's for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that rolls us into the next question of how did that impact your life Mm. in terms of creating a competitive mindset? And what are some of the habits that this bred? Well, like I said, it taught me discipline from such a young age and discipline has showed up in my life too. You know, it's the same tools that I've used to become a world champion. Discipline, focus, being process-driven. I mean, you girls know all about that. And, you know, while we have goals, they set directions, it's how what we learn in the process. It's the day-by-day daily habits that we use to for us to grow. And, you know, I had to show up every single morning, every single afternoon and competing it from four years old I kind of felt a bit lost when I stopped competing because I wasn't competing in anything. So when I found fitness modeling, which originally started off as a hobby, you know, something I just wanted to do, a very expensive hobby, um, (laughs) you know, I I was naturally quite good at it because I could perform, you know, I could perform on stage, but how I showed up in the gym, I had to be better than I was the week before. I had to apply progressive overload. I had to outperform myself. I had to track my progress. I had to, you know, track my food and I really became a scientist to my own body, which is something I've always really enjoyed. And, you know, how we do one thing is how we do anything. So if you can apply discipline in one area of your life, you can generally focus it to other areas of your life. You might find that when you're, when, you know, when we drop the ball, when we go off the bandwagon a little bit, there's other things that go off the bandwagon too. So, yeah, learning to be disciplined from such a young age has really paid off as an adult. Yeah, How do you, like, and talking about that as well, like you were so young and you're competing so young and you're watching your body change at such a young age as well. Like we're sort of in those areas where like we're not even sure what our body image is yet or how we feel about it or what we're meant to do with it or how other people perceive it. So talk us through that whole process of sort of being that competitive athlete and having to perform at such a young age and having to be really strict with your training nutrition. Like what did that do for you? Oh, Alexa, when I was young... I was such a muscly child. Like, I feel like I've just always had muscle. <laughs> Out of the womb flexing. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, yeah, I remember, like, it was so impressive for a lot of people. And it's re- what's really interesting is the stats for gymnasts to have eating disorders later on is something like 70% or 73%. Wow. And um, it's really interesting. I never thought that I was ever going to develop an eating disorder because I loved food so much. And I remember my, my coach was saying to me at the time, oh, you're going to get so fat when you're older. And I was like, no, I'm not. Are you kidding me? Look at me. Like I'm like shredded. You're a shredded, beast. Beast, you know. <laughs> and um, it's it's funny that when I did develop anorexia, all of the things my coaches used to say to me showed up, which at that time when I they said to me, I, I never cared about. I was like, what are you talking about? Um, so that was really interesting. And And it was actually as I was transitioning from a child to an adult, my sister was was older than me and I remember her saying to me, you look like a little boy because I had no boobs and I was really muscly and she was developing as a woman and and obviously she didn't know what she was doing at the time. And that also showed up for me when I started weight training because I, I fell in love with weight training. Like when I was anorexic, I just ran and ran and ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. And then I started weight training and it was so empowering because it had a different feeling and experience to what running did. And I started to develop muscle again and my boyfriend at the time, you know, said that I look like the Hulk and it brought back the, the things that my sister used to said to me and that showed up and I was like, I've got muscle. Does that mean I'm not feminine? And so I had this really, this push and pull transition of I love this weight training. This thing makes me feel so strong and so empowered and I'm really good at it and I'm really strong and all this stuff. 
and in a way people praised me for it. But then I had this inner conflict of, well, am I still feminine? And I and it's quite a topic for a lot of people because everyone's idea of feminine is different, right? You know, for some for some males we are not feminine, but for mm-hmm. others we are. And feminine is what we whatever we want it to be. It's a confidence. It's an it's an inner confidence. But I had to really battle through that side of things, especially as I was quite a voluptuous teenager, um, and then started you know went to anorexia and then was coming out of that. And my body again transitioning from being tiny, tiny, tiny to developing all this muscle mm. and. It was quite a um, a challenging time. God, I resonate so much with that. I remember Likewise. like, yeah, like being, I was like bullied for being too skinny when I was little. So my nickname at school was Alexa Anorexa. So <gasps> I started going to the gym to gain muscle. And then when I got muscle, I remember doing my first promotional modeling job and someone put a photo up and one of the guys, like a guy wrote underneath that you look like a transvestite. And my modeling agency was like, you need to drop weight to become more feminine. Mm. So, yeah, I totally get like the push and pull. Like people can be really cruel. And so much of what you say, I can resonate with so much. I spent um, 10 years of my life with an eating disorder, specifically bulimia. And the battles that came along with that and, you know, having to, I felt quite shamed by it. And now I'm able to talk openly about it. But I can relate to so much of what you went through in that respect. And while bulimia and anorexia are quite different, they still have the same mental battles. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely similarities between the two. And look, I suffered from both and I actually feel like bulimia was the hardest one to to overcome. And the thing about eating disorders is they have a double loop in the nervous system. So they're incredibly difficult to get out of. And think about how common it is for females, mm-hmm. women, young and and older women. It's It's a... Food is such a regulator for the system, but it's also very detrimental. And you know, I think one of the things I noticed about myself was, like, you know, I always try and control as many things as I can, but the truth is I cannot control anything that's outside of this vessel that I have. Mm. And when we can control things, there's a power to it, but when we feel like we can only control certain things, we can feel, feel disempowered. And like you said, at a young age, we're all vulnerable. And I think until we really get to know ourselves... Um, and I'm I'm grateful for my anorexia, to be honest, because I don't mm. think I would know myself the way I know myself without it until we really get to know ourselves and love ourselves, which is really difficult. And at in times unconditional and unconditional love has uncomfortable spaces, everything hurts. You know, it's it's quite interesting. I was bullied as a as a child and I became my own bully. I became the people that bullied me. And I think it's really easy for people to do that. We we become our own. We're our yeah. best friend and our enemy and it takes time rebuilding all the trust issues that we have with ourselves. A hundred percent. And, you know, for me, it was it's like a daily negotiation with yourself. You know, every day it was going through processes of having agreements with myself, making and breaking those agreements and then having to remake those agreements. And, you know, that went on for 10 years. And so, you know, you went from anorexia to bulimia to is it addiction to exercise? Is that come into play for you as well? You know, did you use exercise as a as a coping mechanism for that? Yeah, I definitely did. I mean, because also, yeah, exercise, and I will say exercise because exercise is different from training, right? Mm. Exercise is just burning energy. Training is training to a plan. It's It's got a direction. It's got goals. It's got improvement. It's got performance. And, you know, it's funny how I use a lot of the same principles of gymnastics is like got to outperform myself that I did with, you know, the addiction to exercise. I couldn't do less than what I did before, which was 
<laughs> a lot. A lot. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I use it especially as a coping mechanism and when I was dealing with stress and when I couldn't control things. And so that's what I could control, mm-hmm. you know. So that's really dangerous. And exercise was punishment. It was not for pleasure. Whereas these days it's pure pleasure. Yeah. Like it's it's literally an act of self-love for me. That's awesome. God, I love to hear you say that. I know. That's so, I mean, like that's empowering in itself. Like, and you can, you can hear the passion for your training and your voice, which is awesome. Just going back a little bit, like when did you first kind of notice that you may have a problem with thinking about yourself in a certain way? Like when did you realize it was potentially something wrong or did the people around you kind of notice? I remember so clearly in my mind, I remember running and running and running and thinking, I'm so tired, but I can't stop. Wow. Because at first, where it came about was that I don't think I knew how to grieve. I don't think I knew how to grieve death. And so there was a sudden death of a friend and I looked at it as a way of going, oh my God, life can be taken away from you so quickly. I'm going to make the most out of life. So my internal dialogue was meant to be I'm going to make the most out of life. But it was more like, how do I control everything around me so I don't, that doesn't happen to me? Yeah. And so I used it to, you know, I went from, I was really naughty in school. I went from like <laughs> being a really naughty student to not sitting with my friends and sitting at the front. The teacher's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Are you okay? And and I thought I was doing the right thing. And, you know, I was, I was, I was like, all right, I'm going to get really good grades. I'm going to care about what university I go to. I'm going to start exercising because I wasn't exercising. There was like a, a couple of years where I stopped gymnastics. I stopped doing sport. I focused on boys, you know, had a bit of a transitional moment. But then I pulled myself back and I started to, yeah, control everything. And I thought I was doing the right thing at the time. And I was getting a lot of my information from magazines like Vogue and Marie Claire. And what's really disgusting is that I so clearly remember reading a story around this girl saying how she just vomits up a little bit, just vomits up a little bit and that was okay. And I would adopt that when I couldn't do as much exercise as what I'd done before. So it was like this coping, it was like, and I would, free, I remember getting so much anxiety when I would be late to the bus. I was, it was going to mean I was going to be late to my training session. And it was all about control. I failed a, an assessment that I tried so hard for and I thought, that's it, you're just not good enough. And so that's where I became my bully. It was like, you're just not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. And that kind of showed up in everything that I did. Yeah, I was just trying to control everything. And so I remember running and running and running and just thinking, I'm just so exhausted. I was purple. I would come back purple. My mum would just freak out. And when she would try and give me a time limit on how long I could exercise, I would get up and wait for her to leave and I'd go out and run. And so it was just when people were trying to tell me like I should eat something or I couldn't do this, it was so much anxiety for me and that's when I knew I really had a problem. Yeah. And did you check yourself into hospital or was there an intervention or? I realised there was a, a moment I was in my kitchen with my my mum, my brother and my sister and my mum said to the kids, your sister has a problem. And I just remember screaming and screaming and screaming because they wanted me to go to hospital. And my mum at the time was meant to go away with her family and she said, I can't go, I've got to look after you. And I just felt so selfish. I remember thinking I'd become all the characteristics of someone that I hated about, like I was manipulative, Mm. I lied all the time, I 
wanted to be left alone. When people looked at me, I would like death stare them back. I was just, I was a creature. Like I was so different to what I am now. I couldn't be any more different. And I just remember thinking, I just can't do this. And I screamed and screamed and screamed. And I said, all right, mum, I will only go to hospital if you go away with your dad. Cause I just felt so selfish. He'd just recovered from a cancer. And I thought, oh my God, my mum has been waiting for this, this moment for her dad to be better. And she's not going because of me. It was just, I said, okay, the only reason I'm going to go is for you, mum. So they literally the next day um, put me into the hospital and then I had like a, a first feeding and I just wasn't used to food and I fainted the next day and, and had to be rushed to emergency hospital and I woke up in a hospital. Wow. So thank God. I mean, I did because I was just getting That's down confronting, the wrong man. Very, very confronting. I mean, how long did you spend in hospital? I think I was a week in the emergency ward and then I had to be taken to back to the in disorder clinic. And I was in there for about six months. Wow. The lengths my parents went to and my family went to to look after me, I'm so grateful because it was so hard on them. Yeah. Imagine just looking at someone and going, I can't do anything about it. And that's the scary thing about eating disorders is that everyone else wants to help you, but you can only get better if you truly want to be helped. That's the hardest thing. You have to want to be healthy. Yeah. I think, yeah, the thing I learned with the sobriety, because I've been I've mm. been my 14th year sober now, I think that was what I found the most is you have to have that huge purpose and it has to be, you have to be so scared of the consequences. Mm. Like the fear of the consequences has to outweigh the fear of giving up or not doing the thing that you're doing anymore before you actually quit. And most people really sadly never get to a point where they fear the consequences so much that they stop. Mm. And that's kind of like a sad reality. I think you have to also want to see the future. And yeah. I don't know about you girls, but I mentioned that earlier, like I hate being told what to do. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and I was in a goddamn institute. Someone telling me when I was going to get up, when I was going to eat, what I was going to eat. And I just thought, what do I have to do to get out of here? Would that be your pivot point, you know, where you felt like you needed to make a change, the point where you thought, I deserve better? It was actually more about the other girls, which was really interesting. I remember looking around and going, how do I help these girls? Like, what do I have to do to help these girls? There has to be another way. There were girls that were in that hospital, had been in and out of there for seven years. I was like, seven years of your life, you're never getting back. I was like, you this is just not the way to live. And I was like, all right, there has to be a change. There has to be another way and I'm going to be that other way. So I'm grateful for that really difficult time in my life because I was never interested in being in fitness. In high school, I thought I was going to be in fashion. I was never going to be a coach. So that moment there was like, well, what do I have to do to help others? And also what do I have to do to help myself? And how do I be a new face for fitness or health? And that was the, a really big moment because I was like, all right, I've got to get healthy. I've got to put weight on. I've got to do this thing. And it was definitely easier said than done. There was a lot of relapses. There was a lot of cheating, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> but it got me here. And it also taught me the importance or also the power of the mind because the body does what the mind wants it to do. You know, we can blame the body for everything, but it doesn't do it without the mind. Mm. And so it also taught me how important the relationship with self was, right? It was like, how can I have unconditional love for everyone else, yet I don't have it for myself? And how can I expect all these people to love me? I can't love myself. And that was a really 
hard journey because we seem to be able to see all our flaws and no one else's. And we are imperfectly perfect. Like we're not meant to be a robot. We're meant to have all these things because at the end of the day, all our actions, everything we do is just us trying to keep us safe. We only use the tools that we have at that particular time. So it taught me a lot about myself, but I was able to teach and help others. Like I've been able to coach thousands of women from all over the world from my experience, which is so powerful. I absolutely love that. And it is so powerful to be able to share your message, your experiences, everything that you've been through to help change somebody else's life and somewhat save some other people's lives. When was the moment you decided to take back control and how did fitness save your life? The moment I took back control was when I was in hospital and I looked around at the girls around me and thought, there has to be another way. There has to be another way of teaching women how to look after themselves and I've had to be that. So I recognised that I had to get healthy myself, which was easier said than done, but that led me to the fitness industry. So that was the first pivoting moment. The second came when I started strength training and that really helped me disassociate exercise from the way I looked, but more about how I performed because it was all about how I could outperform myself every single week. Because I had such an aesthetic focus for such a long time, but it was strength training that went, it has no nothing to do with how you look, but everything to do with how you perform. How do I outperform myself? How do I teach other women that strength is powerful, that you can be strong? It doesn't matter what you look like. It's actually just how you show up. And that was like, such a big moment because I felt like it just, it almost took the last bit of the strangle of the hold of an eating disorder that had on me away from me. And I've been able to use it to, you know, do amazing things with this amazing vessel that I get to get to do life in. Like I'm incredibly grateful for this body and I wouldn't be here in this space without that really difficult moment. And if I can encourage anyone to step in the gym and just always focus on how you perform, it can change your life. It can change your relationship with yourself, which will change your life. You know, we're always one decision away from changing our lives and it's so important. I couldn't agree more with that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, part of the reason I love being a coach is because I get to give people that sense of empowerment, that first experience that could essentially dictate their relationship with their training and their fitness going forward. In saying that, like, did you have that person that really encouraged you to take up strength training that was kind of a role model for you? Yeah, I mean, Sebastian Oreb, who is Australian strength coach, who I think you know, like, yeah. he was the one that said, you know, come into the gym, let's see what you can do. And he was the one that really encouraged me to not be like everyone else. You know, I think I was one of the first fitness models to really ride the bull of strength training and and change the way a lot of fitness models trained because it was always high reps and a lot of cardio. And I was like, I was doing the opposite. I'm doing low reps, training like a power lifter and looking a certain way and really encouraging girls to not be so scared to do heavy squats or heavy deadlifts. And, you know, it's really interesting. You know, sometimes people tell me that my training is ugly, but I don't care at all because it has nothing, like I said, like you're training hard. It's not meant to be pretty, you know, it's, it's like going in there and and doing the best that you can. And yeah, he really encouraged me to just be as strong as I can and and not have to do what everyone else was doing. So I'm incredibly grateful for meeting him. I met him at a charity event actually. And yeah, I started training with him like once a week, then twice a week, then three times a week, then four, then six. (laughs) And he's helped me do some really amazing things with my body. 
was he the one that wanted you to get into WBFF? Or is that was that a goal that you set once you'd begun strength training, you saw what you could do and you're like, yeah, I need another goal now? No, I got into competing from one of the girls that worked at the gym that I was working at when I was 19 or no, 20. And she was doing a physique show and I just remember looking at her going, oh my God, like you're, just watching her body change was just incredible. And she said to me, you should try it. So I was like, okay. And then eight weeks later, I was on stage, you know, and, and I got second in that first show. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember I was doing like a bodybuilding pose. They're like, please put your arms down. It's not a bodybuilding show. And I was like, ah, what am I doing? And then like, oh no. I learned very quickly. I learned very quickly. And then two weeks later, I got invited to, I think it was the nationals. And then I won that one. And then I got invited to the next one and then won that one. And then I was like, oh, I'm pretty good at this thing. And it really scratched the itch of being competitive. Yeah. But it was really, I mean, I was doing it all myself. I was at a very amateur level. I was cutting out food groups again, which my parents were kind of like a little bit like nervous from. You know, I was going through post-competition blues, which was something no one talked about at that time. So I was noticing, thank God I was in tune with myself. I was noticing that there were things that were getting pretty wobbly and I wasn't enjoying my experience after the show. And so another pivotal moment was actually learning to track my nutrition and learning flexible dieting. Because in the past, I still had a lot of, you know, there's still some lingering issues around food and what I thought I could have and still labeling a lot of things. So it was actually learning to track my food and working with a guy called Lane Norton, who at the time was like yeah. really all about flexible dieting. And then also working with Sebastian Oro, with strength training. So it was learning to look at foods as neutral and then learning to look at strength training is like, how do I continue to outperform myself? And those two together were amazing breakthroughs for me. And I've continued that work 10 years on. So the reason I actually got into comp- um, competing was just a hobby. But because I became so good at it, I became very much addicted to it because I saw it was almost like, I was like, how can I make the most out of this thing? And it was, it was progression. It was applying discipline and being process-driven and being a scientist of my own body. And then also I was building a name for myself. I was building a brand. I was learning. I was getting educated. I was getting coached. There was so much growth. And you were healing yourself at the same time. And I was healing myself at the same time. And I was getting to know myself and, and getting to love myself. And it's funny that I use competing as such a, it's very much a mountain Whereas I found for a lot of girls working with a lot of women in the past is that it's very much a Band-Aid. And, you know, I love goal setting because goals set a direction. But like I said, it's it's what we learn in the process. It's actually the the small daily tasks that we build confidence and we build upon ourselves. And so when girls get on stage, they have to know what their why is. And you have to want to do it as as a way of, you know, I've built foundations of being able to track my nutrition or be able to, you know, you've been in the gym training, you've taken your body to this level. What is the next mountain looking like? Because it can become a, a Band-Aid and it can be used as something that you're moving away from rather mm-hmm. than towards. And for me, it's always been I'm moving towards something. I'm climbing a mountain, I'm ascending, I'm becoming stronger, fitter. Something I always say to myself when I'm competing is like, how do I take myself to the next level? Yeah. Like how do I become a beast? How do I do it like no one else is doing so it's very much a positive experience for me, even when I don't get the outcome that I want. Yeah. That was going to be my next question because, yeah. I mean, you won. Like you were the first Australian woman to win this massive show. I mean, how did you feel first off when you won the show? Were you like, right, this is the highlight of my career. This is as far as I'm going to take it. You know, like I've done it now. I've conquered the beast. I'm at the top of the mountain. I wish I was like that. <laughs> mm. What's really interesting <laughs> is that 
you know, I had a I had a big calendar in my house and I wrote on it world champion and every single day I'd cross cross it off and I was incredibly driven and it's like I got there and I won it and I automatically went, did I deserve that? Was I good enough to beat the four-time world champion? Because I beat my idol, which was really cool. <laughs> Real, like it was a bit shocking. Like I was kind of like, did I really deserve that? So I wow. robbed myself of that experience, Alexa. Yeah. And I never, I didn't, I've only just started like in the last year talking about that because I felt maybe a bit of guilt and yeah, some pretty heavy feelings around not allowing myself to go, yeah, I, you know, it was after that I lost it. That I was like, yeah, I'm a world champion. So I had to do some more work on myself. It really exposed to me, hey, you've got more work to do. And, um, you know, now for me, it's like, I still want to be the next world champion because when I do, I've done the work to go, like that is, I'm it, you know, and it's not that I'm not a world champion still. Um, I've come second in the last three years. And the first year that I lost the title, that was so difficult. I was mm. so depressed and I was more depressed, not that I lost the title, but that I didn't let myself have it the yeah, year the that I won time. it. That's <sighs> what my biggest regret was. It's like you robbed yourself and now you lost it. Like, is that what you, like, part of me went, you know, that's what you deserve, but it's not. So now it's like, yeah, it's still climbing to the top of the mountain and it will be so sweet when I reach that, <laughs> that bloody mountain well, again. Well, I love it that you said when I reach that mountain again yeah, instead well, of if, when. And that's the champion the mindset right now. Like, what, I mean, What does it take to be a champion? Passion, discipline, definitely a, um, a growth mindset, hardworking, being the hardest worker in the room. And that also means like knowing when to rest and when to play. Radical responsibility, radical self-leadership, two tools that I feel like can change your life because it's, it's hard. If you're not willing to do the work, someone else out there is. And you have to want to do it for you and no one else. And taking yourself to the next level requires more than what you're giving now. And I, and I knew that. And I've taken myself to the next level many times. And when you can do that, you can still expose yourself to weak points. Like we all have weak points. And so I think that it's always continuing to, to work on yourself. And like I said, it's, it's not shiny. A champion mindset's not shiny. It's grit, it's resilience, it's discipline, it's being process driven, it's breaking up this big scary goal and breaking it into small manageable pieces because what's not managed doesn't get measured and what's not measured doesn't get managed, right? So <laughs> I think it's also important to have support around you as well. If you look at the best people in the world at anything, they're never doing it alone. Yeah, they usually have a team. They have a team. Yeah. They have support. And while you might not always have support from the people that you want around you, there's always got to be support somewhere. So I think it's really important as well as like be around a good environment. Could not agree more. I feel like we need to develop that checklist for everyone. I know. I it's feel actually like, yeah. brilliant. I hope you're going to write a book because you should. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So many people say it to me and I'm like, oh, God, that's so overwhelming. I Add <laughs> but to I've my got list. some great stories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, we should swap one day. <laughs> Speaking of training, so what, like, what does your training look like now to where you are? Like, are you in the process of getting ready for your next competition or are you just training for life right now? I have got to answer that question. So I'm going to train, <laughs> you know what? COVID showed me that I don't need an end, end goal to look after myself. Yeah. Awesome. You know, and I think that's where competing falls short for a lot of people is that it has an end date. So most people can work, work, work till, it's, till the show and then they fall off the bandwagon. For me, it's like, no, I'm going to keep working for the rest of my life because I'm devoted to myself because I love myself. You know, all the small steps that I do every day, I just call, actually call them acts of self-love. 
meditation, visualization, journaling, reading, looking after my nutrition, training, sleeping, even going out with friends. Like that's being devoted to all the different parts of myself that require love. And so right now I am about to go into a building phase, which is something I love talking about for mo- with most women because it's such a hard journey for, <laughs> for a lot of girls to go to because, yeah. hey, weight gain scary for a lot of people. It's been scary for me. It's something that I had to wrestle with many times. But you can't build the physique you want without those really challenging moments. So I will get ready for the 2022 world titles. I think I'm going to change categories. I don't think I'm what they want for the fitness model anymore. My legs are always too big and I don't want to stop squatting and deadlifting. So God, I love that. Let's talk about squats and deadlifts. What are your stats? (laughs) My stats. So my goals were to get, and I got them last year, which was really exciting, um, a 150 squat at 60 kilo body weight. That was, I didn't want to be heavier. I was like, no, I've got to be 60 kilos and I'm going to squat that 150, 150 low bar squat. And I'd been squatting 145 kilos for like the last three years. I'd got it so many times and it was like five kilos, just five kilos. It took me four years to put that five kilos on the bar. And I always say that to people. It's like, Everyone gets upset that they're not progressing. I'm like, it took me four years to put five kilos on my one RM. You know, it's like that's that's devotion, that's discipline, that's mm. you know, that's working for it. <laughs> and that's what you gotta do when you're up at that top one percent. So it's been one fifty squat, a one sixty deadlift. I tried to get doubles for that. Yeah, <laughs> tried to get doubles, but I couldn't. One sixty sumo, one ten front squat, 110 kilo front squat. Oh Jesus. And <laughs> 140 kilo high bar. So high bar, wow. you can always lift a heavier weight on the low bar squat. Um, so getting a 140 was pretty pretty good for the high bar. Sheesh. Did you mention bench? Did no, I miss that part? Ben- oh, bench? bench, I've done 85 kilos for three and I don't really bench. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. But I do quite... like benching. But yeah, I benching's great. Oh, my God. See, I hate benching. I'm a pull-up girl. Pull-ups all the way. Yeah, you're so strong. Yeah. I'm actually not. Anyone could do anything for Instagram. I need to do it for 15 seconds. I'm a one-hit awesome. wonder. <laughs> exactly. You're definitely I need not. I to do it 15 seconds. That's Folks. all I have to do. I hate when they Folks. go, can you do it again? You're like, no. Give me a break. <laughs> so what does training look like for you now? So at the moment I'm training five days a week, three lower body, two upper body. I don't actually don't want to get a big upper body. I'm pretty happy with where it's at, but I really want to uh, build my lower body out. So uh, it's looking mostly like glute work. Um, I haven't been squatting and deadlifting as much as yet because I hurt my rib, but I'm looking to get back into that very shortly. So like a lot of hip thrusts, a lot of lunging, uh, leg pressing, hamstring work. I'm trying to get as strong as I can in all of those movements while I'm not squatting and deadlifting right now. So yeah, five days a week, three lower body, two upper body, and that's it for now. I really want to perk these peaches of mine. So do I have to do three glute sessions a week? That's what I'm currently doing anyway. Three lower body sessions a week. As long as your body's recovering from it, yeah. then it's it's always about how much total volume that you can recover from. It's like if you think of training as like digging a hole, there's not enough nutrition to support it, not enough mm. recovery. You just keep digging a hole. You never actually be able to feel it. And if you think about muscle, it builds over each other. It's like when you break a bone and yeah. calcifies, it's the same thing. So a lot of women end up doing way too much volume that they can't recover from and wonder why they're not getting mm. results. Yeah. And they pull back on it, increase their intensity or their effort, not by doing more, but just what's in front of them. Yeah. And, you know, have good sleep, good quality nutrition and things change. Yeah. Noted. So like you've got off the back of all of your competition, you have got this incredible coaching business called the Sports Model Project. 
What I find really interesting about this is like you are all about empowering women to like be their best selves. In terms of the actual business model, you're coaching women to get on stage, yeah, to sort of compete. Is that the primary goal of the business to enable women to feel confident enough to compete and to put them up on stage? The mission of the Sports Model Project is to create a world of resourceful women powerfully supporting one another. Okay, That's the mission. The <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, we're all about transformation. So whatever that looks like to the person. And when you really dig deep with a lot of women, they can say this external thing. It might be getting on stage or getting into bikini. But what I really hear when I speak to them is I just want to learn to love myself. But I need to give myself this goal because I need a bit of pressure. You know, and mm. something that we do in the Sports Water Project is when we do goal setting, we peel back some layers and we go, well, is this goal a moving away from? Like are you trying to improve self-worth or do you know your worth already? You've, you've overcome these challenges. You know how to track your nutrition. You know how to apply progressive overload. You're meditating. You're journaling. You're doing acts of self-love. And now actually the next level to you is getting on stage because that's, like I said, that's a, an ascending goal. And so we actually pick apart what it is they really want because for a lot of women, they create these really, really demanding external goals to feel something. Mm. But what they really want more than anything is actually to enjoy the body that they have and be able to live in it. Mm. You know, so that's why I was grateful for COVID because I was like, whether I compete or not, I'm doing the same process I teach my girls and I'm not doing more than them. I'm just doing it better. Like <laughs> it's not about doing more but doing what's in front of you at the best of your ability. Refine, 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 refine. So with the Sports Water Project, we look at the whole human experience. Like we've got so many parts to ourselves and so we look at meditation. I've got a meditation coach in there. I've got a neuropsych who's developed a curriculum where the girls get to learn about their own nervous system so they can understand their own behaviours and where they come from. Wow. And I've got coaches from all over the world who have, you know, exercise degrees and, and nutritional degrees and women that are WBFF pros and have eight, nine, ten years experience coaching women as well. So we've got all these amazing skill sets, essentially resources that the girls can use because it's not just about training and nutrition. They're tools. Yeah. Right, they're tools. But there is so much more to us than that. If you think about it, everything we do is based off the nervous system and how we try and keep ourselves safe. All our behaviours that we do, the things that we learn is to deal with our environment around us. So if we're looking at changing habits, we have to understand where they come from. So I don't, I coach, yeah, girls to stage and I love that. But what I really love is helping someone become a happier human being. And that is very much based on the relationship they have with themselves because that sets a tone for every other relationship. You talk so much about, you know, the acts of self-love. I'd love to know more about like your morning ritual and your accessories to fitness. Um, you place a lot of importance on the mental and the spiritual. So how do you honour yourself? <laughs> I, I've got a saying, I meditate, I masturbate, I hydrate, and then I caffeinate. That's oh, like yes. My, yeah. God, I, I love that. <laughs> That's, that's so good. That should um, be a wrap. You're in charge of the masturbation social media. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah. You got to look at like to be intimate. Like I always say, like into me see. We want to mm. be like getting to know ourselves as being intimate with ourselves. And so, when I was going through a really difficult time uh, over the last couple of years, I had a really terrible breakup, and I really it exposed to me some work that I had not done, that I'd relied on a partner to do. And I developed this touch meditation in the morning. And it was to thank my body. It was to 
go back and thank myself for everything that it did and, and again, reconnect with my, become intimate with myself again. And so now that's a big part of my daily practice. I also do visualization, especially when it comes to hitting goals, like getting on stage or doing my posing routine or hitting a, a 150 squad and visualizing myself do that. Journaling has been an absolute gift to my life. I use it to anchor myself to my goals again because we all get distracted at times. Um, it's like you've got to realign yourself with, hey, what am I here to do? Monday to Friday, I've got a process. I'm work focused. I've got to do all my nutrition, have that kind of checklist. It's also a great way to declutter your brain. And writing is more for the writer, not the reader. So I barely go back and read what I wrote, but I use it as a way to realign myself with my process. So they're probably like my key tools that I use to essentially my accessories to fitness and achieving my goals and just keeping myself in check. Because just like everyone else, I get distracted. I'm human. I fall off the wagon. But it's how many times can I and how quickly can I get back on there? And also, where are my behaviours coming from? Checking in with myself and reevaluating myself and going, well, where I'm at now, am I pushing? Or do I, can, I, can I coast for a little bit? You know, and I always say that like December, January is like my time to shine. More so with my friends, I get to be a little bit, a bit more playful because January all the way through to August, I'm going to be in the gym, like I'm going to be very strict with myself. And so in order for us to be hard on ourselves or know when to push, we have to have periods of mm. pulling back and, and being ready to push. Otherwise, you're just going to want to rebel against yourself. God, I mean... You are so incredibly self-aware. Yes. Like I've learned so much just by listening to you today. So with everything that you've been through, what advice would you give to somebody else wanting to sort of follow in your footsteps of wanting to be a professional athlete? My advice would be definitely know your why. I think why is a very important question to ask yourself because if you don't understand why you want to do something, then when the rubber hits the road, you're not going to be able to put your foot down. And there's a great book called The Five Whys. And I think reading's really healing. It can allow us to open our thoughts to, to other things. So knowing what your why is is really important. And then be process driven, right? Like I said before, what gets measured gets managed. So writing out your process, having, if you're someone that's a visual learner, you like to tick things off, use a calendar. If you're someone that likes to write, use a journal. If you need to get help, get a coach, get supported, make sure it's it's passion, not punishment as well, I think is a big thing because it's easy to do the punishment. They're probably my my main, yeah, tips to being successful. I mean, because successful is a process, right? It doesn't just happen. And, oh, fail forward. Mm, that's like what, literally one of my favourites. Mm, fail forward. Like we learn so much with failing. You don't actually fail till you stop. So I always say first time's a mistake, second time's a choice. Yeah. yeah. Right? If you're not willing to reflect and reevaluate, that's another one. Like every Friday, my whole team, we reevaluate ourselves. We reflect, we write down what we've done well, what we could improve on and what were our wins. And that's a weekly thing that we can do. And we look back on what we're doing with our process. We're only as strong as our weakest link. Mm. What's your weakest link? Don't punish what's strong. Keep doing all the things that, you, that are empowering to you. But look at your, your blind spots and your weak points. Like I've had to do it. I continue to do it. It's the only way I'm going to be able to push myself to those next level is knowing what's holding me back. God, I don't, it doesn't sound like anything at this point in time. But <laughs> <laughs> like, what is next for Hattie? So you'd yeah, like to get a 160 squat, 
be the world champion, 2022 world champion again, and uh, continue to grow the Sports Water Project and help as many women as possible. They are incredible goals. I absolutely love, 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 love mm-hmm. to see those unravel, and I'm sure that they will. Talking to you has made me want to be coached by you, and there's something to be said for talking to somebody with a huge amount of life experience and in you know, you're still so young. You've had so much experience in your lifetime already. And, you know, to be guided by somebody like yourself, like you're setting women up for such life. great success and for life. Well, look, if people want to follow along on your journey or find you or be coached by you, where is the best place to find you? The best place to find me is probably my Instagram, which is just Hattie Boydle. I've also got the Sports Water Project. So I'm always here to help as well. I love a good conversation. I don't know if you could tell. Um, (laughs) And I love helping people. So yeah, feel free to reach out. Well, we love you and we love you helping people too. So thank you so, so, so much for joining us today. You are one of the most empowering people I know. I can't even tell you. And one of the most iconic in the fitness industry. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. How Fitness Saved My Life is hosted by me, Action Alexa. And me, Jenna Louise. Producer, Tina Madelov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch and executive producer Jennifer Goggin. Listener.